Lasso. Before we go into our session, assignment session, of course, I'd like to just give a very brief announcement. Uh, I was brought to my attention, kind of reminded me today, uh, that from the 23rd of October until the 25th of this month, uh, His Holiness Dalai Lama will be giving teachings on Shamatha and Vipassana uh, in Dharamsala, India, uh, from his great exposition of the stages of the path. So I believe there's at least one person here who would like to take advantage of that opportunity and actually has the wherewithal or the, the means to do so. So if anybody else kind of thinks, oh, maybe that's something you'd like to consider, um, that would require your leaving here a little bit early, do so with two great big thumbs up from my side. Really good idea, if you can possibly do it. Terrific opportunity. Okay. Uh, if you can't, I wouldn't be surprised if the um, if they make recordings and those become available on the internet. But to receive it from them personally, of course, is a tremendous blessing. And then also, should anyone go there, either in the near future or later on, of course, there are many remarkable people there, lamas, monks, nuns, and so forth. Uh, but there is one in particular I'd like to especially draw your attention to. She is generally known simply as Kandola, Kandola, and she is quite young, maybe 35, at the oldest, maybe late 30s. Uh, I've met her only once, spent all of one hour with her or so, and asked her to become my lama. So she's one of my lamas. I almost never do that, but just being with her for one hour and receiving her just uh, teachings right from her heart, um, I was it just made a very lasting impression. I was just uh, rather in awe of the extraordinary purity, purity of her as a human being, about the depth of her intuitive wisdom that just flowed spontaneously, and with such joy. It was uh, it was really one of the most remarkable experiences I've ever had, because almost never do I ask a person to be my lama when I first meet them. Um, and so she's there. She's there. She is an oracle. She's also a very profound practitioner with tremendous devotion, uh, tremendous devotion for Solomon Dalai Lama. Um, so if you ever have an opportunity to, to even meet with her, be in the same room with her, or to receive teachings from her, unfortunately there are a relatively small percentage of great lamas are women. To my mind, she's one of them. She's really remarkable. Yes? Yeah, she, I wouldn't say she's part of FPMT. Uh, I know that. Yeah, she is. She is her own person. She's not a part. She's she's part of the Buddha fields. So no, she's not part of it. I I won't go along with that. I mean, I have tremendous respect for Lama Zubrin Rinpoche, but um, she is. They are very fortunate to have her come to France. I'm going to put it that way. Um, she's a really remarkable person. So I I wouldn't I wouldn't do that to say she's part of this particular subgroup of Igalupa. She's she's part of space. She's beyond any kind of thing like that. Really quite remarkable. So, whether in the near future or the distant future, uh, she is a person with whom to have a connect, karmic connection, uh, I think would be very worthwhile, very meaningful in this lifetime and future lifetimes. Okay? And she's based in Dharamsala. So, let's have one silent session. Shamata of your choice.
You'll recall that in the practice of shamatha, the core theme of this, which is not so much highlighted, interestingly, in the Tibetan tradition, but is very strongly highlighted in the Theravada tradition, and very rightly so, is that the practice of shamatha leading up to the first jhana is really designed to dispel the five obscurations. Or often called, you'll find it more commonly translated as the five hindrances. The Tibetan dipa really suggests obscurations, and my reading of that is, as soon as you say obscuration, you have to say what is obscuring, and you all know it's obscuring substrate consciousness. Yeah, and so I won't go through the list, but the, I just wanted to refer to this very briefly, that as you're bringing forth these five jhana qualities, or. or Jhana factors, jhana factors. Oh, excuse me. As you're dispelling the five obscurations, simultaneously you're bringing forth the five factors of jhana, which are just natural qualities, just like cognizance and luminosity are natural qualities of consciousness, just as bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality are natural qualities of the substrate consciousness. Likewise, a mind that is brought to this really quite remarkable balance of access to the first jhana or the actual first jhana is just naturally imbued with these five qualities. You don't get them from someplace else. They, that just goes with the territory, right? But why, again, why I wanted to mention this right now is that remarkably in this internal system, in this internal process of just doing something as simple as following your in and out breath, observing your mind and so forth, that the five jhana factors rise up one on one to serve as natural antibodies, I like that phrase, natural antibodies of the five obscurations, one-on-one. And so the while the, the malady is there in the dysfunctional mind, the five obscurations, the each of the five remedies is there as the mind becomes less and less obscured, and so the medicine is built in. So as the afflictions, the imbalances are built in, so are the remedies built in. So I think that's just very cool. Uh, and you, But you've heard all of that, so that's a review. And now where I wanted to go is something, a point you may have heard on an earlier podcast or read in one source or another, but it's so meaningful that even if many of you have heard it before, it's really worth hearing again. And that pertains to, once again, the internal, the internal wholeness, don't know a better now, a noun, um, the internal marvel of the four measurables. And I'm going to unpack it right now. So a number of you are like old hands, like Nicola, will know exactly where I'm going. And that is in the meditative cultivation of loving kindness. Sometimes, of course, it can go astray. It falls into the false facsimile, or more literally, the near enemy, that which looks like loving kindness and really isn't. And that is, only Nicola can't answer, because I know he has all the right answers. So that, go ahead, yeah, please, go ahead, Catherine. Jump. Yeah, self-centered attachment, exactly right. 
And so it's it's that sense of my well-being, my well-being, and others are... Then it just kind of goes with the I-it relationship. That instead of looking at a whole bunch of you's, one is looking at a whole bunch of it's. This can come out of shamatha practice. Shamatha practice, if that's all one is doing, can actually make one very self-centered. You know? Oh, you're bugging my shamatha practice. Piss, you know, buzz off, buzz off. You're bugging me. I'm trying to be really holy here. Would you take a hike? You're really irritating me. You know, I want to practice shamatha and be really a sublime holy being. But you really piss me off, you know. So it's kind of silly. So, there is the false facsimile, right? Self-centered attachment, very good. Very good, that's exactly good translation. Hmm. And now, the internal marvel is that among the four immeasurables, one of the other three naturally arises as the remedy for the near enemy of self-centered attachment. Right? Self-centered attachment arises. And what's the one that evens that out? Because it's kind of a lumpiness occurs. The priority, the sense of someone being valuable, precious, to be cherished, it gets lumpy. So, right? It gets all lumpy over my side. Self-centered attachment is kind of congening. My well-being is more important. Me, me, me. And so how do you iron that out? Equanimity, yeah. Natural, a natural remedy, a natural antibody within that matrix of the four immeasurables. Equanimity, what's the very core of it? We're attending to others not as it's. Not as, oh, you're, you're pleasing and you're not so pleasing and you're pleasing and not so pleasing. Not that. It's evening it out. So each person, one's, one's gazing through not only the physical appearance, attractive, unattractive, that's the most superficial. If you want, if you want attractive, look at a magazine. Because everything is photoshopped, you know. <laughs> then they got it right. That's how human beings should look. Look in vogue. Look in, what's that? One that sell underwear. Somebody's secret? Victoria's secret. <laughs> you want to see how human beings should look, especially females, they should all be six foot tall, have big boobs and really slender waves, and they're all 25 years old. You know? <laughs> and they have absolutely flawless skin, every single one. And their boobs are all the same size. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, they're just the perfect human beings. You know? So, so if you want just attractive, look in a magazine. You know? If you want really ugly, Oh, look in the mirror. <laughs> Speaking of my own first-person experience. Ooh. Open up those teeth. I want to see those teeth. Oh, yuck. <laughs> oh, yeah. So equanimity evens that all out. With an open heart, extends evenly every sentient being being perfect. Uh, not perfect, but precious. At the deepest level, of course. Primordially pure. But there's a natural, there's a natural antibody. So, should in your cultivation of loving kindness, you find you start getting lumpy, more me, 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 then consider where's the natural antibody, it's cultivation of equanimity, and there it evens it out, we get back to reality. Because, of course, my well-being is no more important than Katinka's, or Paula's, or Tracy's. It's all even, each one is, each one has Buddha nature. So how can one be better, how can one be more precious? How's that possible? When you've not Buddha nature, it doesn't make any sense to think, oh, I'm more precious, yeah. Says who? You know, nobody else. So there we are. So there's one. But now having said that, whether or not we ever meditative, meditatively cultivate loving kindness, we may on occasion feel self-centered detachment. And so may other people too. In which case, equanimity is a natural remedy. Right? It's there. It's just waiting. And it's just, you know, it's just the anti-venom. It's just the anti-venom for something that's really very afflictive. It's really toxic. 
to consider, you know, the self-centered attempt to pay taxes. It's very dehumanizing to everybody else and self-aggrandizing to oneself. So there's nothing untoxic about that. So there's the first one. The second one, of course, is compassion. And the, the here the, the false facsimile is quite easy to identify, and that is depression, grief, despair, yeah, all in a package. A sense of hopelessness, all of that in a package. And as a therapist, you know how those are so profoundly entangled with each other. And so when one starts to slip into that, it's kind of an obvious one that would be the, among the other three, empathetic joy. It's there. It's, it's kind of, it's being totally realistic. It's not biased. It's saying you're biased. If you become hopeless, you become despairing. Hey, you're, you're not getting the whole picture here. There's some really important aspects of reality you're not paying attention to. And I'm going to show you which, which ones they are. And then you, you balance it up with empathetic joy. Well, so there it is. Right within the, right within the group, there's a natural antibody. And of course, it goes without saying, many people fall into hopelessness, despair, and so forth without ever meditating at all. In which case, this lends itself. You know, this is some really profoundly good advice. Cultivate empathetic joy. Third one, empathetic joy. How does it go astray? Into? Yes, Santiago. Yeah, was that a hand going up or was that a twitch? Yeah, you can just go on dream. That's certainly true. Uh, and I'm fishing for a little bit more specific. Um, yes, go ahead, Catherine. Frivolous joy. Yeah, and, and what you're saying is certainly in that category. Frivolous joy, hedonic fixation. We all get it. It's just... Focusing on the hedonic and, and basically investing oneself in, in the hedonic. This is going to turn out well. <laughs> you know, like that. And so it's kind of silly. Once again, it's unhinged from reality. Each one of these is unrealistic. Self-centered attachment is not realistic. Grief and despair is not realistic. It's only got a fragment of reality. And then this frivolous joy, hedonic fixation, that's pretty superficial. That's not realistic. This is the one I find actually most interesting. The other ones, the other antibodies are kind of transparent. You can easily figure them out just with common sense. But this one I find the most interesting, actually. And by a process of elimination, you might get it pretty quickly. But what springs to mind as a natural antibody for this frivolous joy, hedonic fixation, and so forth? Jason? Loving kindness it is, yeah. That's an interesting one. That's really a thought-provoking response. It's It's a correct response. But it's a thought-provoking one. Because loving kindness, if loving kindness is just, may everybody be well and happy, like that, if it doesn't go beyond the hedonic, it is superficial. Because everybody's not going to be well and happy. People get old, they get sick, and they die. So exactly, you know, how are we avoiding that? The Buddha didn't. He got sick, he died. And so, if it remains at hedonic, it's a sweet thought, but it's really not very realistic. Whereas if we acknowledge the value of hedonic well-being, which we all cherish... The Buddha himself would take medicine when he got sick. He went on alms round every day, as far as I know. Um, but when we consider the cultivation of loving kindness, while acknowledging the value, the importance of hedonic, is really focusing right through that to genuine happiness, then there, there it really makes profound sense that if we, can, if if I start getting caught up in just Oh, I'm becoming famous. Oh, I'm getting money. Oh, people like me. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And start really thinking, you know, really holding on to that as something really of value. Well, everything I just mentioned, if I have money, I'm going to lose it. If I have fame, that's going to lose that. If other people love me, well, I'm going to die. They're going to die. So that's going to be a dead end. You know, I mean, literally a dead end. I mean, finished, you know. 
And so, if I really love myself, I should be a bit more creative, a bit more imaginative than that. Dead end, dead end, dead end. So how about anything more? You got what? What else you got? Oh, genuine happiness. Oh, that enables you to die magnificently. In other words, dying is not, you know, a catastrophe, the loss of a battle, and so forth and so on. So at this very deep level, if one oneself gets caught up in this hedonic fixation, just to take take a step back, breathe deeply, and consider what would make me truly happy. And will it, is there any real promise in the hedonic that that will satisfy my inner longing for fulfillment, for meaning, for genuine satisfaction and contentment? And I think the more deeply one reflects, one sees the chances are zero. There's not even a smidgen of a chance. Nada. Right? Hopeless. If you want to be hopeless about something, be hopeless about samsara. Totally hopeless. Right? So there's that one. And then equanimity, that's pretty easy. Everybody knows that. How does that go astray? Aloof indifference. Stupid indifference, aloof indifference. So that's sad. That's kind of sad. That's really sad. It's kind of like, oh, you know, warm up, warm up, melt. Come on, you've got it in you. There's a life spark there someplace, you know. So what's going to, what's going to arouse, to make you feel something? Compassion. How can anyone, unless you really, the, the heart not only is hard but it's calloused and entombed in concrete. How can one really be present with another person who is really sad, who is really in pain, and not feel something? I think it happens, but... Oh, I, there was a, an excellent movie that came out years ago. What was it? In Exile? Was, it, was that one? In Exile from the Land of Snows? It was one. It was one where they interviewed a Tibetan from way eastern Tibet had been recruited by the Chinese communists to be a torturer in one of their concentration camps. The Chinese communist government were very clever that way. They'd get Tibetans to torture Tibetans and then they would stand back and say, we didn't do it. They're just punishing each other. They're just punishing their own. You know? So it was a guy from Amdo and he had been through years of torturing fellow Tibetans, monks, and so forth. And then finally, you know, couldn't handle it anymore, escaped came down to India, and he was interviewed, and clearly a deep remorse. But he was the one doing the torturing, the electric the electric cattle prods and other grotesque kind of things they would do. He was one of the people that did it. It's one of the saddest interviews. I mean, it seared itself into my mind. One of the saddest interviews I've ever seen of anyone. Not the people who could... Oh, I, I've spent a lot of time with uh, people who have been tortured. They, often they don't... Uh, People like Yandana Mujia, I mean, he's one of the most benign, blissful people I've ever met. So when I attend to him, I don't feel compassion at all. I feel reverence and awe. But he spent 18 years in a concentration camp, you know. And others as well I've known who spent years and years in concentration camp, Tibetan monks and so forth. And But they come out with compassion, with warmth, with kindness, with equanimity. I don't feel compassion for them. I feel reverence for them. And, and, and uplifted that such is the nobility of the human spirit to be able to be so treated so savagely, and come out without hatred. I find that simply awe-inspiring. So, when I meet people like that, I just feel reverence. But here's a person on the other end of it, and I saw him interviewed, and I just felt such sadness for him. It was like somebody had taken a blowtorch to his heart, and it was just crispy. 
it was like a mask. It was like a death mask. It was like he had so harmed himself that there was almost nothing left. It was really tragic, really tragic. That and, and there was a flicker there, and there was remorse. Clearly, there's hope for him. There's clearly hope for him. But the damage he did to himself was, I think, staggering. Just staggering. So sad to see just, is that really a human being or is that just, you know, like that. So, compassion, to attend to. So I mention him because I felt feel if you've habituated yourself to torturing other people, then you're, there'd have to be a shutdown, a shutdown of empathy that you wouldn't feel it, that you would feel so distant from the people you're torturing that you wouldn't be touched by it. And there would be a massive override, a massive override. This is justified. This is justified. This is justified. Even when reality is screaming at you that it's not justified. So only in a radical case like that, I think, can one attend to the suffering of another and not, and not feel something and start to be lifted out of aloof indifference. So... That internal, again, I don't know the noun, but the fact that each of these four can go astray, but among the four there are, there's one that comes immediately to the rescue, to the, to, to balance it out. I think it's really quite exquisite. There's just a majesty in the way they four, it's not, in other words, it's not just four virtues. The integrity, the wholeness, the interrelatedness is really quite extraordinary. And so, those are classic teachings from the Nyingma tradition. Um, and then I'll just add an image that I enjoy. Some people found it maybe helpful a little bit. And that is as we, now as we bring this week to a close, and clearly next week we're very much mentally, psychologically in transition, eventually most of us will depart. Um, it can be useful to think of one's, one's Dharma practice as like a carriage. So that's why this Mahayana, Vajrayana comes out to the great carriage Vajra carriage, and so forth. And so if you think of your... And then setting out, of course, on a path that goes from here to there and doesn't just go around and around or meander all over the place. And so if you think of your Dharma practice and your Dharma practice, your life, just seeing those more and more as one, as non-duality, um, then with a carriage, at least in the old-fashioned days, before they had horseless carriages, uh, they had horse-full carriages, and so imagine your life, your Dharma practice as a carriage and pulled by four great steeds, four mighty horses. Okay? Two in front, two in back. Classic. Classic format. If you consider this, what's drawing you forward? What's drawing you forward? Well, I, I, I would suggest that you couldn't have four better steeds pulling your, the chariot of your practice of your life, drawing you forward firmly on a clear path than the four measures to draw you forth, giving you the energy, the momentum, the strength, the movement, moving ahead. And so imagine, if you will, your life, your Dhamma practice as a chariot, the two front great horses, great steeds, loving kindness and compassion. The two in back, oh, equanimity, empathetic. And so, as they're pulling you along the great path of your life, hopefully a path to awakening, 
imagine that, and then as we draw, draw, draw out this metaphor, this image a little bit further, that on occasion, this great steed of loving kindness stumbles, starts to triple, maybe about to fall over into the side. Well, right behind loving kindness is equanimity. And so equanimity calls up to the horse immediately in front of us and says, don't you worry, I've got your back. I'm watching you. If you ever go astray, if you ever stumble, I'm looking after you. This is buddy system. Okay? I'm looking after you. You stumble, I'm going to be right there. I'll bring you back. Don't worry. I'll not let you fall. You start to fall, I'm going to bring you back. So, equanimity. I'm watching you, loving kindness. Take care of you. Right? Likewise, compassion up there on the right. Love and compassion is a nice pair. Compassion sometimes stumbles, starts to maybe slip off into despair, the sadness, hopelessness. And right behind compassion is equanimity. Equanimity says the same thing. Compassion, don't you worry. If you ever stumble, don't worry. I've got your back. and I'll bring you right back. You will not fall. I won't let you. I've got you. I'm your buddy. But then meanwhile, over here, equanimity left and just behind. Equanimity, of course, may stumble. Start to fall into aloof indifference. Compassion up there in the front right. Looking out of the corner of the eye. Don't worry. I got my eye on you. I'm your buddy. You fall. I'm going to protect you. I won't let you fall. You may stumble, but you won't fall. I've got you. I'm watching you. Quarter of my eye, but I'm watching you. I'm taking care of you. And then, of course, you know the final one. Empathetic joy starts to fall into frivolous fixation and all of that. There's loving kindness looking at the right eye. Don't worry, empathetic joy. I'm your buddy. I'm watching after you. And I will not let you fall. And so, coherence there, each one supporting the others. Just a, a marvelous balance of interdependence. So, I like that image. That's all useful to me. I like images. Hola, so. So, I, here's from Santiago. Santiago, I was hoping you could comment on how the four immeasurables transform into bodhicitta and into the stages of a bodhisattva. Any text you would recommend? Very, very rich question. Um, the classic meditations, tracing back to Shantideva, tracing back to Asanga, which and then are united in the teachings of Atisha and integrated in the teachings of Tsongkhapa and many of the other great expounders of the Lam Rim, or stages of the path, don't tend to make, at least in my very limited reading, don't tend to make explicit reference to the four immeasurables within that specifically bodhicitta meditation. Are they there? Absolutely, they're there, but not laid out as such. On the one hand, on the other hand, the person who first wrote wrote the first, excuse me, the first Lam Rim or presentation of the stages of the path was Atisha. And he wrote that particular format for the Tibetans. There was no Lamrim before Atisha. Nobody wrote any Lamrims for the Indians. That was for the Tibetans. And But it was Atisha who said, only you Tibetans know how to develop bodhicitta without the four immeasurables. And he was being sarcastic, or ironic. Ironic is probably the word. And so implying that, of course, I mean, there, just, there is no bodhicitta without developing loving-kindness, compassion, and so forth. So we just have those two there. So the answer is, off the top of my head, I mean, there's a text by Long Chemba. Uh, I think I have it in my files. And he discusses, discusses the, the four measurables and great compassion and so forth. I, I haven't memorized the text, so I simply can't remember whether he makes a clear segue 
from the four immeasurables to the cultivation of bodhicitta. I just don't recall. But it's there. It's not too hard to find. So if somebody, if you remind me, then I can, I can look in my files to make sure I have a translation of the text. It's not my translation. Um, but having said that, um, let's consider that, okay, I think our understanding of four immeasurables is pretty decent. The nature of loving, of, of bodhicitta, we know that it's directly catalyzed, aroused. That is a central piece for the, the, the arousing of bodhicitta is great compassion. That's a real, that's a clincher. Very well known. Great compassion. And so if we consider kind of a sequence, then here's one that perhaps is not nonsensical. And that is, as we've done in the past, I do believe there's a very meaningful sequence in the four measurables that we start with loving kindness as we have. And I've unpacked that over the last seven weeks. I think it's extremely meaningful. So the loving kindness moving into the realm of possibility, the compassion brings us back to reality, and then up and then over to empathetic joy, and then even to equanimity, that sense of evenness of self and other. And then from that basis... Then coming right back to loving kindness, but this time coming back to loving kindness to cultivate great loving kindness, maha maitri. And the crucial difference is the four immeasurables really culminate as aspirations. May it be so, may it be so, right? But the four greats, the maha maitri, maha karuna, that's the big one, maha mudita, empathetic joy, great empathetic joy, maha upeksha, great equanimity. Each of these, as we see very clearly stated in the classic liturgy, the Mahayana liturgy. Each of these really culminates, it comes to a crescendo in not simply an aspiration, but a resolve. And a taking on, upon oneself, a commitment. That's the big difference. That's the big difference. And so in loving kindness, I think as you well know by now, there is this resolve, this commitment that must be stemming, as I've said this quite a few times, if it's to be realistic, it must be stemming from your own Buddha nature and not anything more superficial. That I shall, I shall do it. It doesn't even say may I. Karasa. Dagi I shall do it. I shall bring all sentient beings to happiness and the causes of happiness. Not even aspiration, it's I'll do it. You know? And then asking for blessings. I need some help here. Back up! You know? And so there's, there is Mahamaitri. Mahamaitri. And a splendid way, a joyous way, to venture from the immeasurables into the Mahayana, coming in with a resounding kind of a joyous proclamation, a joyous resolve and commitment. But of course, again, there needs to be that reality check. Okay, I've just made, I made, just made a big promise. Shantideva really refers to this specifically. Hey, you just made a big promise to all sentient beings. Don't break it. That means you've lied to every sentient being in the universe. That's bad. That's a big lie. Right? And so you've made this commitment. But then the reality check. How can I... So, but there's this ocean of suffering. Oh yeah, for me to bring each one to happiness and causes, and we're talking about ultimate happiness here, then I must relieve each one from suffering, the causes of suffering. Okay, that's it. I shall do it. That's Mahakaruna. But then moving on, bringing back, balancing out, balancing out, then bringing to mind, may all sentient beings never be separated from happiness free of suffering. Then it comes back to resolve, I shall do it. And so this then brings us right back on target again. That is to something and not simply away from something. Right? And that could only be genuine happiness because the notion of eternal hedonic pleasure is just kind of nuts. It's superficial and silly. And so it's got to be genuine happiness. And so moving there and then into finally 
I shall do it. That is, may all sentient beings abide in equanimity, free of attachment and aversion to those near and far. Uh, I shall do it. I shall do it. So in each case, just reinforcing, reinforcing, reinforcing the sense of profound personal commitment. Each each time, in a way, arousing one's own Buddha nature. Because from any other depth, it's just silly. From that point, then, to my mind, it's quite a natural transition, having made these four profound promises to all sentient beings, you know, that, all right, I've just made this commitment, I've just come to great equanimity, uh, gee, and I've asked for blessings, that's good, how am I going to do this? Well, it, these kind of come to a, a wholeness, kind of like four metals that become fused into one alloy. All four now become fused into what is called in Tibetan, Hlaksam, Hlaksam. The, this extraordinary resolve, extraordinary resolve. And that is that I shall liberate all sentient beings from suffering and the causes of suffering bring each one to perfect enlightenment. Oh, that's a big fusion. Big fusion. Because now it's all together. Loving kindness is there, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. They're all fused in that one resolve. I shall bring every sentient being, liberate every sentient being, from suffering and the cause of suffering, bring each one to enlightenment. So now they fuse into one, right? And then, once again, reality check. How can I do that? Oh, there's only way. There's only one way that can be realistic. I've got to become a Buddha. Otherwise, that's not realistic. How can I bring them to something you know, that I've not realized myself? And so, okay, therefore, in order to carry through with that promise, May I achieve enlightenment. And that's bodhicitta. So, what do you think, Andrea? Is that okay? Okay. It's quite marvelous, isn't it? It's really quite, quite awe-inspiring. So I think that's it. That would be one, one way to cultivate bodhicitta. Okay? And with nothing new added from my side, this is not now Alan Wallace's approach. All of these are classic teachings on the four immeasurables and the four mahas. Four grades. So good. Thank you. Very, very good question. Hola. Hola. So from Tracy, what happens when one realizes emptiness? Does it happen in meditation? Does your, do your senses go dormant or the opposite? Can you lose it? Oh, yeah. And you want this in how many minutes? That's a, that's a perfectly good question. It's from Tracy. So what one happens when one realizes emptiness? Well, the answer to that is that it depends on the depth of the realization. There are many, many gradients. So I'll tell a story from Tsongkhaba's life. Oh, Tsongkhaba was giving teachings on emptiness. And as Anila knows, Andrea probably knows a number of people who attended teachings by really, really great lamas. When they're speaking from very profound realization, there may be such a blessing there that even just by being in their presence and attending with an open heart, open mind to these teachings, whether it's pointing out instructions on Rikpa, whether it's teachings on emptiness, teaching on impermanence, just by being in the presence, open, the heart open, taking it in, there can be really kind of a resonance that takes place as as if they're transmitting their insight to you, right? But that's because you have a Buddha nature and they have a Buddha nature, right? And so this happened to one monk, uh, Tsongkhaba, uh, was giving teachings on emptiness to probably quite an assembly of monks because he was a very, very renowned lama giving teachings in emptiness. And there was one monk from Natang, a region of Tibet called Natang, 
and again listening with rapt attention, just focusing on this great being who's just speaking straight from his realization. And uh, as Sungava was just speaking about this, suddenly out of this whole throng, this whole assembly of monks, this monk from Natang, he was just like that, and then he went, he jolted, jolted, and he grabbed his collar, grabbed his collar. And Sungava, clairvoyance, and so he, he noted immediately, and he's, I think he must have smiled. I don't know, but I think he must have smiled. <laughs> and he said, oh, this monk from Natang, this guy from Natang, he's just established conventional reality on the basis of his collar. And that is what had happened to the monk was, he was, he was gaining some real glimmer of emptiness. And it basically freaked him out. That just kind of like, and then, <laughs> you know, okay, I've got a collar. You know, I don't have much, but I've got a collar. You know, I'm holding onto a little iceberg, you know, in the middle of the south of the, the South Pacific. But I got an ice cube to hold on to my collar. You know, and so he was gaining some insight into emptiness. Did his senses shut down at that time? Not likely. He knew where his collar was, right? And so, was that full realization? Did he become an Arya Bodhisattva at that point? Well, very unlikely. No, because when you gain a direct, non-conceptual, unmediated realization of emptiness, it comes with an extraordinary bliss, way beyond the bliss of shamatha, way beyond that bliss. Ah, and so, from this monk's glimmering, his insight, the little breaking of the clouds, where it so shocked him that he he needed to scramble for dry land, you know, uh, from that, but it was something authentic. He wasn't just freaking out because he had made a mistake. He was gaining some insight but a bit premature. You know, he, did, he wasn't able to assimilate it. From that, all the way through the stages of deepening, deepening, refining, refining insight, where your realization of emptiness, you, it's as if you're sifting away any concepts, ideas, conceptual projections on it, almost like looking at the moon through you know, multiple veils of clouds, and one layer dissipates, and another layer dissipates, another layer, until it's just now, oh, there's the moon and you and nothing but empty space in between, you know, so now it's completely unveiled. So, when you're still in those modes, uh, and it's realization, it's not just a conceptual understanding. Professors of Buddhism who never practice can get a conceptual understanding. Or monks who never practice. You get a con- monks or nuns, it doesn't matter. So when you get a conceptual understanding without even practicing, and then you can talk about it, and talk about it accurately. You know? Um... But in these earlier phases, you're still very much aware of your environment. Right? Now, when you gain, when you become an Arya, whether as a Shravaka Arya or Arya Bodhisattva, at that point, as I mentioned a day or two ago, your mind becomes completely freed, unlike Shamatha, completely freed of conceptualization. Which means being totally non-conceptual, from your side there is no conceptual designation. Your mind's non-conceptual. And there being no conceptual designation, there are no designated objects from your perspective. Therefore, there are no designated objects or designated subjects, which means the whole world vanishes. And your mind, it said, oh, like water, pouring one cup of water into another cup of water. Your mind is poured into emptiness such that there is simply no duality between your awareness and emptiness. But it's an experience only of emptiness, right, in that case. But there are many, many stages prior to that. 
Does it happen in meditation? Well, this monk was listening, got a, a, you know, a little bit of realization while listening to teachings. There are many, many stories throughout multiple Buddhist traditions of people gaining some degree of insight when they're not deeply in meditation, right? But, um, most commonly in meditation, this Bahia heard the, heard the very short discourse. He gained realization of, of nirvana. Well, he realized emptiness, you know, slipped into it enough that his mind was completely purified. Do your senses go dormant? Uh, only in the non-conceptual realization. Yeah. And can you also lose it? Absolutely. And that is, yes. Um, and this is where we, what I just mentioned to you in our personal meeting today, these four phases, first of all, gaining some understanding. So, as Chris is doing, reading this marvelous book by Gilnam Rimba, Realizing Emptiness. Read that book, study it carefully, and you can come away with an understanding. You know, and that can be transformative. It's meaningful, right? Uh, but then if you put it, say, oh, well, he was, that, was, that whole book was about meditation and not simply a discourse on emptiness. Let's practice it. Then you get some experience. But experiences come and go. You've had all kinds of experiences in the last seven weeks. They come and they go. That's the nature of nyam. You know, they come and go. But then you may gain realization. Realization, that's much deeper than simply some experience. That's knowing something. Really knowing something. And knowing it, boom. Like, I know who you are. I don't have a hunch. I don't have kind of an experience. Maybe that's somebody there. Boom, I know who you are. Boom, got it. Dok, right? But now, can one undock? If dock is to realize, can you undock? Yeah, you can. A person who is addicted to smoking and the person's best friend then dies of lung cancer and one sees maybe the x-rays or some photograph, and maybe they do an autopsy and show it's just full of black tar. The person who's still smoking may look at the death of his friend, and maybe even look at the lungs, and really, oh, whoa, smoking can really kill you. And then stop smoking. And then, six months later, be in a really stressful situation, and start smoking again. Got undult. That which you got, it fades. It fades. Unless you get to ding topa, or ding topa, it comes in both both modes, and that's achieving, literally it's called simply, very innocuous little term, achieving competence. And that's like, it's in, oh, I, love, I, just, I love the image, I like images, but it's like that nail that is countersunk. So, boom, but then you get a, a spike and put it on top of the nail, boom, and now it's beneath the level, and then you put some putty over it. Boy, you're going to have to rip that board apart to get that nail out. There won't be much board left, right? Because that was, oh, that was really in. So Deng Topa, that means it's irreversible. That's not coming out. So certainly, I mean, it's before then, but boy, when Arya Bodhisattva nails emptiness, that, that nail never comes out. And it saturates everything. All of your post-meditative experience, the world appears differently. It's apprehended differently. Okay? Oh, yeah. Moving right on. As we come to a close of our Saturday afternoon. If a being in the bardo chooses parents, and not only out of karma, but a free choice, whatever that is, uh, why do we say wise choice? Because I don't know what free choice means. But, but out of wisdom, not only out of karma, that can certainly happen, but out of wisdom, why would we choose, for, for instance, to be reborn in Africa from parents, yeah, who are starving, knowing that we will be starving ourselves and so forth and so on, 
Uh, nowhere in Buddhism does it say, in any school of Buddhism, does it say that ordinary sentient beings, when they're bardo, they freely choose where they're going. That's nowhere to be found. Very much to the contrary. And all you have to do to think about an analogy is just think about how free are you in a non-lucid dream? You know, how, how lucid are you? Um, I was in a non-lucid dream this morning. It's classic. I haven't had a dream like this for a long time. But traveling and traveling, first by airplane, then by train. And then when I got off the train, it was the wrong stop. And all the whole, whole party that I was supposed to be with, they had got, got, gotten off on an earlier earlier station. And I had no money, not even to, and I didn't know what station they got off on at. And so I'm wandering around this strange train station and thinking, I don't have any money and I don't know which stop they got off on and why did they leave me? Didn't I have a buddy? (laughs) And uh, so when I was feeling this anxiety um, and wondering what to do, there was no free choice. There's not even, not even a whisper. The word free choice doesn't even have any meaning in that context. but then, it struck me as odd, because this is actually one of my dream signs. I had that kind of dream when I was in my 20s. And so I jumped. I jumped up. And I jumped up and I hovered, and kind of went into a fetal position next to the wall, hovering about four feet off the ground. I said, I must be dreaming. Because I don't normally do that. And, you know, jump up and go fetal. Very rarely. And so, as soon as, but in that moment then, as soon as you become lucid, anybody, there's nothing special about me at all, as soon as you're lucid, then then you can start making wise choices. Like, oh, I'm lucid. Let's, let's start making use of this. What were those teachings I gave? Oh, yes, engage with the dream. And so then you... <laughs> you know, I, I listen to my teachings on occasion. Not always, but sometimes at least. But as soon as you're lucid, you can start making wise choices. When you're not lucid, are you making any choices at all? Or are you simply acting out of habit? So in the non-lucid dream, so in the non-lucid bardo, Non-lucid bardo, you're pretty much not making choices, you're just reacting, and you're acting out of habit. So if you have really good habits, benevolent, benign, loving, and compassionate, good! You'll habitually respond with compassion, that's very good. If your habitual responses are more ones of craving and aversion, not so good. But you're not going to be making any real wise choices, because you're not even lucid. How can you make wise choices when you fundamentally got the nature of reality wrong? That doesn't make any sense. So, <coughs> might there be a great bodhisattva who out of compassion, while lucid in the bardo, deliberately and out of compassion decides to be born in Africa? Well, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Nelson Mandela was such a person, or Desmond Tutu was such a person. Or people born in the United States, or Europe, born in poverty, born in very dire circumstances, and then they rise like the phoenix and just are blessing. And they're especially a blessing because of tough upbringing. Poverty, no dad around, mother who knows, and all of that kind of, and they rise out of that with the nobility of the human spirit and they inspire so many more people than if they'd simply born in a really fat, rich family and, you know, had a really cushy upbringing. So could it happen? Yes, it could. I'm sure it does. And I know that, oh, years ago when I was speaking with Kishinga and Taige, and I was kind of getting getting the message of the six six uh, six realms of existence. Uh, it's one of the rather rare times that he really scolded me, Gishingon Taige, 
but it's like 1972, 73, something like that. And I was just mentioning to him, boy, I've heard about those lower realms. I really don't want to go there, you know. And he turned to me. He was, if not wrathful, he was definitely chastisement mode. He really was. That way, he was not joking. He said, you shouldn't think that way. Oh, I don't want to be born in a lower realm. You shouldn't think that way. You should be willing to go to the lower realms out of compassion for others. So stop thinking like that. It's tough. I've been thinking about that. So, so that's why most beings are simply propelled by karma. So if it's good karma, it's good karma. Bad karma, but not much in the way of choice. If you're lucid in the bardo, and that's a major reason, that's the primary reason in traditional Tibetan Buddhist practice for engaging in dream yoga. It's not to have fun and games and to fly and walk through walls. It's to get habituated to recognizing the dream as the dream so that when you're in the bardo, you recognize the bardo as the bardo and you can start making some wise choices. Like in remembering the dharma before you died, that you knew before you died and applying that. Then you can make wise choices. So I won't use the word free choice, but you can start making wise choices. And what more can we ask for? That we make wise and compassionate choices. Yeah? So according to Tibetan culture, to have a few consorts... Oh, here's a very different very different question. <laughs> now we're, now we're going to have some fun. <laughs> to have a few consorts at the same time, as many lay lamas do. I wouldn't say many. I mean, so, many? Some. Some? Some, yeah. I mean... My, my, my teacher, Gatron Mush, is a lay lama. He doesn't have many consorts. Some. So, as some lay lamas do. And even Padmasambhava, yes, he had one, and he, he was, he had one, Mandarava, and then he had Yashasokya. Is not against ethical values? No. No. Not if it's all by consent. That is, the Buddha wasn't monogamous. As a prince, when he was a Buddha, he was celibate. But as a, as a prince, a noble prince, it was part of that culture. I think it is very important not to be ethnocentric here. To think that somehow, I mean, the Bible isn't monogamous. Give me a break here. You know, it's not monogamous at all. It's all over the, the Old Testament, you know, multiple wives, like that. And then, you know, monogamy became the norm. In most, but not all branches of Christianity, Mormons don't think all that highly of monogamy. You know? So, in Tibetan culture, number one, the Buddha never said that you know it's unethical to have two husbands or more, polyandry, or two wives or more, poly, polygamy. Never said anything bad about having one, monogamy, and thought it was quite cool to have none at all, celibacy. All four, and all four were practiced in Tibet. Now, deceiving, lying, well, that's no good because it's called deceiving and lying. So if you're present, if you're leading your spouse to believe that you're monogamous and you're not, well, whether it's with just a one-night fling with a prostitute, or whether it's having a mistress on the side with whom you conceive a child, or whether it's having a whole harem in the back room, it's deception, it's lying, in which case that's not wholesome, right? But in cultures where this is accepted, Tibetan culture, there are, on many occasions, and not the norm, but it's not that exceptional, for a woman to marry multiple brothers. Land, arable land, was very scarce in Tibet. And they learned very early on that if they started dividing up their little properties, you know, like four sons, and each son got one-fourth of the land, and each of those sons has one-fourth of the land, after all, they'll have about, you know, a bucket 
of land to support their family on. It doesn't work, right? So you can't keep on dividing up. It can't be like in many other countries where there's plenty of land to spare, like North America when they first settled, you know? And so they, they figured that they can't divide up the land. So, number one, that was really good for the monastic tradition because the second sons often went off to the monastery, in which case, no babies under normal circumstances. Um, and the eldest son, or at least the eldest son that stayed at home, would get the whole property, would get the whole property, and then they have enough to support a family, right? Uh, but sometimes more than one son would want to stay at home. They wouldn't always want to become monks. In which case, you got two sons that want to run the same farm. They both like to get married, but the farm isn't enough to hold to support two families. No problem. Find some woman who doesn't mind having two husbands, two brothers. And she is not going to give twice as many babies as two women would. No matter how many husbands she has, he's going to give, she's only one woman. So it's not going to be, you know, probably no reason it should be any more than having one husband. I think we all know the biology here. And so, one woman being the, the wife of two brothers, three brothers, it's part of the culture. So why should we stand in judgment of that? If they're happy with that, the Buddha never said anything against it. Or if one, and it's not just lamas, if one rich guy, this happened among the aristocrats, one rich guy, if he can support two wives, and both are okay with that, why should we stand in judgment? The Buddha never said it was wrong. He had a harem before he left. Monogamy is great. That's the norm in Tibet. That was the norm. The great majority had one on one. On one. That was fine. And some, like Milarepa, were not monks, but remained celibate. And then they're monks and nuns. So, I feel that was, to my mind, this is just my opinion, I think that was really healthy. It's relaxed, it's open, and no deception. As soon as the deception, period, then it's deception, it's called lying. So that's my opinion. Oh yeah. Oh, can you tell a little bit about the range of ways of working with the fear that is holding us back from seeing things the way they are? There is much, much evidence right in front of us, but it seems our hands, our, our hearts and minds uncontrollably prefer to remain blind and ignorant to it. Very sensitive question, very heartfelt question. It deserves a very rich answer, and our time is gradually running out here. But I will try to get to more questions. This deserves more of an answer I can, than I can give right now. Um, overall, I think we human beings have a fear of the unknown. A fear of the unknown. Even if we're in really dire circumstances. For example, a, wi a wife uh, that is suffering from uh, spousal abuse. Spousal abuse. Maybe a drunken husband beats her up once in a while. Verbal abuse, something like that. So really misery. Really. But she has financial security. Because while he may, you know, beats her up once in a while, at least he's paying the bills. So it's miserable, but she has some security. Right? Then she might think, well, maybe I could run off. Maybe I could simply divorce him. But then who will take care of me? And can I take care of myself? Do I have enough skills? If I have children, can I take care of them? How? Oh, that's scary. Because I'm not sure I can take care of my... Or even if I, if I have enough skills to take care of myself. But what? A, that's scary. That's not something... Well, maybe I should just... After all, he's not that violent when he gets drunk. And then go back to something that is awful but known. Right? So to go into the unknown even when you know what you're coming away from is awful, 
can sometimes be so frightening that you stay with the known, which is awful. So I think you can see I speak with sympathy for this. So how to venture out into the unknown and overcome the fear? Well, there was perhaps, that is an awful example, but I think it's not that uncommon. We all can resonate with it. We know it happens. Right? In meditation, meditating on impermanence, facing the reality, that everything we experience here in this phenomenal world, every relationship we have, every acquisition we acquire, every status we come upon, all will be lost. Well, it's kind of a fearful prospect. Death itself, the parting, the loss of loved ones, all of that, the loss of material goods, and so forth. It's frightening because it gives us some sense of security, even though it's a complete illusion. Nevertheless, for a little while, it's like holding onto your iceberg in the South Pacific. Well, at least it's firm. At least it's holding me up. And let's, let's not, let's not look at the fact that it's melting. Because that's really, that's a negative thought. Don't be negative. Don't be negative. Just enjoy the nice warm water. And this isn't this a nice, cool place to hang out. And don't be negative. Stop that. Let's enjoy the iceberg. You know, so that's more comforting until you're floundering and you have no preparation for floundering because your iceberg just melted. And so the Buddha said this is actually most transformative in terms of, of aspects of reality that can really tra- change the mind that are not too difficult to access. And that is the awareness of death and impermanence. Tremendously transformative. It can really drive you like, like stampeding buffalo towards the pursuit of genuine happiness. So, but it can be fearful. It can be frightening. That's why we're so good at shrouding it. We don't, we don't kill our animals. We put them down. Right? We put them down. And we find so many other ways. Rest in peace over moldering, smelly, rotten flesh. Where there's no peace or unpeace. It's just rotten flesh. We cover it up in so many different ways. Uh, put a happy face on it to avoid facing the reality of our own mortality and the impermanence of everything we experience in the world. So to ease one's way into it, there's one. To realize, to really fully confront the reality of dukkha, boy, to face that is just going to call for a radical shift in your values. I knew one woman years ago in Switzerland, and she was very bright, very well educated. She was coming to regular teaching with Geshe Bapton. And her husband was very bright. I met him, maybe just once, he was also very, very bright. He was a psychologist. So it studied the mind a lot. And she became a student of Geshe Rappen, really dedicated. And uh, she spoke to her husband and said, you know, this Geshe Rappen, he knows a lot about the mind. Why don't you come for teachings? You know, with me. He's talking about meditation, the theory of the mind. It's very rational. It's very compelling. And his answer, I thought, was very interesting. She told me what his answer was. She says, I'm not going. I'm not going to go listen to him. Because if I listen to him, I'd have to change my worldview, and I don't want to do that. I'd have to change my values, and I don't want to do that. I'd have to change my way of life, and I don't want to do that. So you do it. I'm comfortable where I am. You know, I'm a full professor at a major university. You may call me a doctor. You know? And so, but likewise for shamatha. What's the terminus of shamatha? It's the substrate consciousness. What's the terminus of life? Substrate consciousness. Shamatha equals death. Lucid. Death. But it's still substrate consciousness. So some of you already experienced a little foretaste of fear. 
when the practice goes well, not when it goes when it goes poorly, then you fear that you really suck at shamatha. And when it goes well, you really fear that you're going to suck at being alive. You know, because you can maybe slip into the great abyss of substrate consciousness and never come out. Well, that won't happen. So the short answer here is that, especially in meditative practice, if you can contextualize your practice in a way that takes out the bite of fear, gives you a sense of confidence, a sense of refuge, place it within the context of four measurables, there's an enormous sweetness in that, and then tread gently, go gently. Don't try to push, don't try to jump into the deep end. Go gently, gently. And when you see the fear arising, face it. See whether it has any basis in reality. And move forward gently. And all the fear can be overcome. And that's one of the great boons of being awake. It's one of the qualities of Buddha mind, is you're completely fearless. And one can see, one can see by analogy how that must be true. Because the more lucid you are in a dream, especially when you're just kind of slam dunk lucid, that you just know nothing there in the dream is there from its own side, hardcore. In other words, you know you can never be a victim. When you're really, really lucid, you know there's just nothing that can happen that will make you the victim. Nothing. All the Maras of the world could rise up to meet you. You know. And they got no target. So the more lucid you are, the more fearless you are. That's a powerful analogy. So the Buddha was lucid in a waking state. Completely fearless. Reality-based, absolute fearlessness. So become awake. That's the best technique. The Dharma has been described as the law of nature or as encompassing the, the nature of reality. If that is true, then all sentient beings are involved, are, are involved in the Dharma whether, whether they are formal students of it or not. For instance, I have met people who show an intuitive understanding of Buddhist concepts without any exposure to the teachings. That's true. The word for reality or phenomena is dharma, and we, we translators will often put it with a small lowercase d. Um, and then when we speak of practicing dharma or the sublime dhambhecha, the sublime dharma, then we're talking about the dharma that leads to liberation. Um, but sure, I'm with you. Yeah. All sentient beings are engaging with dharma. All sentient beings are moved by their Buddha nature and their sense of wanting to find happiness and be freedom from suffering. And the, the only way that aspiration stemming from their Buddha nature will ever be satisfied will be by realizing who they are. So yes, everybody's practicing Dharma, but then with that distinction, and everybody's following a path. But the question is, if the aspiration, this root aspiration stemming from the Buddha nature is to find a lasting state of well-being and complete freedom from suffering, then an authentic path would be one that actually led to that desired result. And in it, an inauthentic path would lead either somewhere else, somewhere else, diverge, or go around in circles. And so this is why in Tibetan this phrase, Yangda Pelam, it comes up a lot in Dujun Lingba's writings. Yangda Pelam, an authentic path. And we had it just the other day, remember? Those, those people who are just totally caught up in delusion, and they have no path at all, no authentic path at all. Well that means they're not on the way from here to there. They're just on the way from here to here with variations. Just variations of samsara. But it's really not moving. There's no progression. There's no development. It's just variations on the same theme. And the theme is called dukkha. So this is why the Dhamma is so precious. The Dhamma that leads to an authentic path. In a sense, we're all mumbling through the universe of our experience, some more skillfully than others, perhaps. 
I think not perhaps. I think some, some really are more skillful than others. Just like the earliest, early cosmologists bumbling their way through the heavens, persuading Arthur Kessler to, to call his history of the efforts, the sleepwalkers. Yeah, I love that book. I read it years ago and I was enamored by it. A really marvelous history of, of, uh, the, the birthing of modern astronomy. Such reflections help me with humility, with connectedness, and with devotion to the wellsprings of life itself. Lovely. Lovely, Laura. Questions are always so thoughtful. Um, I'm in wholehearted agreement with you that we all, all of us sentient beings, all of the same family, all having the same common ground of wishing to be free of suffering, to find happiness, all of us having the potential to do so, all of, on occasion, all of us, on occasion, practicing virtue. You know, find the most despicable person on the planet. You'll find occasions that person also does something virtuous. You know? And it's not it, it, the opposite and not the case. The Buddhas don't sometimes slip up and engage in non, a non-virtue. But uh, that common ground. And then something that really, just really spoke to me very early on. In, and we'll stop here. This one's long. So this will be for, for Monday. Um, but something I really must say really spoke to my heart in the early days when I was just encountering Buddha Dharma is that none of the lamas I've ever trained with over 40 years have ever equated Dharma with Buddha Dharma. Sometimes just within the context we say, okay, practicing Dharma, we mean Buddhism. But that's within context, right? But all the lamas, they all know this. I mean, it's not even debated, not even hardly even mentioned that there's Christian Dharma, there's Hindu Dharma, there's Taoist Dharma, there's Dharma that doesn't have any religious name to it. And after training with Gishengon Taigya for a year or two, I'd heard a lot of Dharma by then, relatively speaking, compared to hearing nothing. And I don't know, I'm so happy I asked him. Because after I'd been hearing this term innumerable times, because uh, we're getting lessons six days a week, you know, pretty much every every week of the year. Um, I asked him, Gila, what's Dharma mean? What's the word mean? I didn't say Buddha Dharma, I said, what's Dharma mean? Sure, it's an Akariya, Dhanakariya. He said, oh, I can't quote him, cannot quote him verbatim, because I didn't have a tape recorder going, but I know what he said. And this would be a very close paraphrase. He said, what's Dharma? As is, as in a Dharma to practice, not just Dharma as phenomenon, like this is, this eyeglass case is Dharma. Well, it's a phenomenon, it's something real. But he said, okay, Dharma, Dharma that you practice, Dharma is a way of viewing reality, a way of practicing that leads to a lasting state of well-being. Oh, so is there Christian Dharma? As the Christians cultivate unconditional love, like that Spanish monk that the Dalai Lama met, was he practicing Dharma? How can one possibly think of anything other than yes, right? And people around the world who are developing patience, trying to overcome the tendencies of anger, are they practicing Dharma? People who practice generosity when they hear of a natural catastrophe, and they just spontaneously move, whether the most hardcore Politburo member communist that is moved by compassion for some mining accident in China or what have you and is moved by compassion to do something to help. Is that Dharma? The mother caring for a child out of compassion. Is that Dharma? Yes, all the way through. It's all Dharma. It's all Dharma. So then I kind of breathe easy. Easy. Because I had heard 
as I was growing up, the notion of one way. We have the one way. We have the only way. And I just always, whenever I heard that, didn't matter who it's from, I just thought, that's a bunch of crap. Why would you think that? You think that because you're born in America? You're born in that family, therefore you think that you're, because you've been people in your environment, in your local, in your family, they believe that, therefore it must be universally true. But if you're born in Mecca, you're born in Jakarta, you're born in Sri Lanka, Colombo, you're born in Beijing, that somehow the, the only way is, just give me a break here. The notion of there being only one way. So, I really rejected it. I could never stand that. And I, I challenged people who believed it. And I said, you know, how can you rationalize? How can you make any sense of this? They never gave me a satisfactory answer. It was all blah, blah, like their mouth was full of marbles. So, and moreover, again, that goes for the, you know, the, the, the advocates of scientism. The only way to know reality is by scientific method, objective, quantifiable, physical. What a bunch of crap. Even they don't believe it. You know, and I've expounded on that, so no elaboration needed. But even they don't believe it. So, is there a, is there a, a one way, is there a one way, an, a one way to liberation? Yeah, there is. Now I'm going to surprise you. <laughs> there is a one way. Oh, Dipachia Mijashin, Gewa Pinson Sopocha, Rangi Sene Yonsutu, Dine Sangi Tembai, Rawaya, Tadil Lam Chipo Mare, Dimato Yomare, Adila Lokso Lam Tane Yomare. So a little bit of Tibetan chit chat there. Dipachia Mijashin, so here's the one way to enlightenment. I'm speaking, I should speak with a deeper voice. Voice of authority. Engage in no unwholesome behavior at all. Do your very best. Avoid all unwholesome behavior. Devote yourself to a bounty of virtue. Live a thoroughly, richly virtuous life. Completely subdue your own mind. This is the teaching of those who are awake. Those who are awake. The Sanskrit happens to be Buddha. But that's the teaching of those who are awake. So that one I'll stand by. There's no other way. To say, well, I don't like part one. I want to engage in unwholesome things. I really like it. Sorry, then you've missed the one way. I don't like virtue. That's silly. You missed the boat. I don't want to so do my mind. I like having Kate. I like OCDD. I really enjoy it. You're hopeless. You're hopeless. You're hopeless. You're hopeless. You have missed the only way. Because the only way is avoid unwholesome, devote yourself to the wholesome, subdue your mind. That's it. But that certainly needs a certain bandwidth, doesn't it? Right? So I'm happy with that one. That's the only way. Oh, yeah. So that's a very nice note to end on. In which case, I think it's all time for the Royal Way. <laughs> See you around. Enjoy yourself. Have a lovely Sunday.